Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, on. Let me try and do a deeper voice. Yeah, on. <laughs> Two twins and an album. I'm trying to be Peter Steele here, and it's not working. See, I wish we could all try and be like Peter Steele, but there's only one Peter Steele. I mean, there are a lot of things uh, that Peter Steele has that I wish I had. Several things. A lot. Yeah, on. Like, yeah, that's as low as I could talk. Yeah, on. Man, I miss typo negative. How how many times, you know, a day or week do you just kind of think about, God, I miss that band. Constantly, you know, constantly. I think, uh, not to uh, spoiler alert here, but I think hopefully there will be a day sooner or later, an episode, I should say, sooner or later, where we'll... uh, Talk about those guys a bit. You just tickling everybody with a little feather there? Just a little feather ticker. No big deal, buddy. We're going to, uh, it's always important to admit things to each other, right? T, don't you think a part of the podcast, we've disclosed a lot of information and it's a little bit of a confessional, you know, it's, uh, I think, uh, beyond uh, all other things, two twins in an album is really just a chance for us to fess up, you know, fess up about things. It's like taxi cab confessions minus the taxi cab, Mm. you know, but my confession to you here on episode, what episode is this? Um, 18. We're we're going, we're going from Rupert Holmes to uh, something different. I I think only on two twins in an album. Can you go from Rupert Holmes to Slipknot? A a quantum leap, if you will. (laughs) So my admission to you here on episode 18 is uh, T I am a maggot. And sort of a proud maggot. Mm. And I'm always, uh, I love bands who label their fan bases with a name. You know, I I think it's great. There's been a few of these. And for Slipknot, we are all the maggots. I didn't know that. Yeah. So like uh, Grateful Dead had dead heads, right? And uh, parrot heads for the doo-doo. Parrot heads. Lady Gaga had monst- little monsters. Little monsters. That's right. Has, I should say. Is there one for fish? Uh, I think they tried like fish heads, but it never really caught on. I don't on. think it caught on. Yeah. Uh, does Taylor Swift have one of those? Uh, like a, You're like part of her, uh, I don't know, her posse or yeah, something? Yeah. Yeah. There's probably something going on there. Yeah. But ban- a lot of bands have decided to, to kind of do this and... Slipknot, right off the bat, when Slipknot started referring to their fans as maggots, I thought, oh, this is something different and interesting. <laughs> you know, sort of that, that Primus sucks thing, you know, that Primus fans chant Primus sucks or, or like Glenn Danzig just kicks his fans in the head, you know, that are up front. I, <laughs> yes. There's this element of, uh, I don't know if it's self-deprecation or masochism, probably a little bit of all of the above with the relationship between fan and band uh, with some uh, examples. It is, but, but the flip side of that, and perhaps it's a balance to the whole maggots thing. There's, there's probably not a metal band that has been more respectful and gracious to its fans uh, in the end than Slipknot. And we'll, we'll talk about this, this very unique cast of characters 
here on episode 18. We'll also explore what is similar about Slipknot and Dave Matthews Band. Mm. Because there's a stark similarity. Well, clearly there's... (laughs) I mean, it's virtually the same group. (laughs) So we'll get into all of that fun and excitement here on Two Twins in an Album. But first, let's take episode 18 round and round. Hit it. What is on your turntable? A band that I think we've discussed on here before, a band that's been around for a very long time, and a band that we both quite enjoy, that being Starflyer 59. This is their third LP called Americana. So they had the silver album, the gold album, and this is the uh, Magenta, I suppose. Is that what it is? called Americana and it is uh it's a it's a record that really holds up well. I I love their first three albums. I think they're all similar in it in the shoegazy. I mean, clearly a lot of my bloody valentine fans here uh, but but they're all unique in their own way, particularly when it comes to the guitar tone and the drum sound and the vocal effects and those type of things, but you know, Jason Martin just a, an impressive dude to be, I mean, around for you know, almost 30 years in the biz and really a, a, a pretty compelling body of work. But this was, uh, this must have been late 90s. I think Americana came out and I think one of their best. So, really, really great one. I've been revisiting there from a band that try not to go too long without revisiting. The second is uh, a little bit in the realm of, of tonight and it being a, a bit of an abrasive uh, metal band, one of my favorites, Helmet. And this is their record, Aftertaste. Uh, which is one I just loved at the time. Uh, obviously, in the meantime, and Betty were the albums that preceded this. Uh, but uh, Aftertaste is uh, really, really good. I've kind of revisited after taking many years off. Uh, some really great tracks, particularly on the front half of the album there. And the third is uh, the band M, who you know was famous for their uh, smash, you know, hit single pop music with a K. And this is their album, New York, Paris, London, Munich, which uh, I think some consider a a classic and some consider one that's kind of important to that unique, you know, sort of new wave electronica uh, approach that this band M was uh, taking at the time. I think they only put out two albums, but uh, been revisiting that one, which obviously features that famous song, but has some really great tracks uh including one called woman make man which is uh one of my favorite pop songs of the 80s so that is what is round and round for me how about you nub those are some very uh scrumptious selections you have there as always (laughs) first for me would be the final album from cream appropriately titled goodbye this was the band's swan song it's a little bit of a mix mash collection for them but it has the song badge on it of course written by George Harrison and probably my favorite cream song. And uh, so cream's goodbye has been making the rounds. Do you think that they uh, titled it? I mean, is this one of those examples uh, which I think we may touch on shortly here on the old podcast here on an upcoming episode of albums where you can kind of hear and feel the band breaking up. Do you get that impression from cream goodbye? And do you think the title foreshadowed that in any way, or was it all coincidental as they say? I definitely don't think it was coincidental. It might have been one of those albums they had to fulfill their contract 
with, I think RSO was their label, but it could have been a contractual thing that they had to get out. And it's got like a couple live things on it, some studio stuff on it. So it would suggest that maybe they were checking the box before they could officially break up by putting this together. So yes, you can certainly hear the band breaking up. Hmm. If you watch any clips of Ginger Baker, you can see uh, why that band broke up. He just, he's an amazing personality, but he just seems like an uh, impossible human being to work with. (laughs) Little zany. Little zany for sure. But, uh, but it's got badge on it, baby. So that's, that makes it good in my book. My second selection would be the debut album from Emerson Lake and Palmer titled Emerson Lake and Palmer. This has lucky man and take a pebble and the barbarian on it. Emerson Lake and Palmer certainly, you know, became kind of ridiculous a little bit, little bit later in their career. But the first couple of albums, particularly the debut, are just amazing progressive rock works and just a showcase for three just profound musicians. So the first ELP album. And then the last one is a soundtrack. It's um, songs from the original motion picture soundtrack of a little film called This is Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah it's called, it's called black album black album yeah it's called it's black like album black mirror really yeah, yeah. It none it really it just can none more black really none more black yeah and uh i scored a vinyl copy of it and uh you know just great reminder of clearly one of the funniest and most clever movies of all time by far that the black album had more than a two-word reveal if if i remember correctly <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Really just a two word review here. <laughs> That's a shark sandwich. What a great, what a great record that was. By the way. <laughs> so that is what is round and round for me. All right. T, well, I've already told you I'm a maggot and uh, Slipknot is a fascinating work of art. I remember reviewing this band back when I was in my younger days, reviewing music and sort of referred to them as more of a work of art than a metal band. I remember they were cornered into the, new metal genre, which is kind of ridiculous. I do want to pause for a second just and make sure the audience knows that you had the greatest job in the universe right out of college. Have we talked about this? We made small references to it. So Nubs was a, um, this is back when newspapers existed back in the good old days there. Nubs was tasked with the very, very difficult profession, I would say, um, of reviewing albums and more importantly, concerts, as well as, uh, you know, getting to interview musicians of his choice on a, was it a weekly column or? Yeah, it was a weekly, yeah. I actually became the editor of the publication altogether, but yeah, it started off as a weekly column and then it kind of grew from there. So I was like doing the corporate thing, you know, I was like putting on a suit and all this. And then, you know, I'd call nubs. We were living apart at the time. And I would uh, call him and be like, yeah, work sucks. You know, it's a grind. And what are you up to? And he's like, well, I'm just going to see, uh, you know, Porcupine Tree and work's paying for it. And then, you know, I'm going to interview Stephen Wilson after the show, you know, just just kind of another day at the office. And I was just like, I hate you. (laughs) It was just an incredible five years uh, being able to do that. And, you know, young 20s and single and all the time in the world and, and, you know, didn't get paid peanuts, barely made peanuts. So don't be too hard on yourself. You're off in New York making good New York money. And I'm, (laughs) you know, kind of scraping by with this little newspaper job, but it it was an incredible job. And I think we'll reference it from time to time. And, And actually it's, it's 
interesting you bring it up because it's a big part of the wonder story is Slipknot because that job was really intertwined with me getting into this band and learning more about them and, and having some experiences with Slipknot that were really unique. So, um, and so I'm glad you brought that up. It's almost like we planned that. You'd think so. I mean, during our show prep, you know. <laughs> that would require preparation, though, for us to plan that, you know. Our show prep pretty much consists of, you ready? Yeah. Yeah. What time? <laughs> yeah. Noon. Okay, let's do it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, th- this band became uh, a really important band in my musical world in the mid-2000s, and we'll get more into that, but certainly a work of art. I think Slipknot needs to be taken in a much deeper way than, than many of its fans probably did. And we'll talk about some comparisons to Dave Matthews band. One of them is misunderstood. You know, I think Dave Matthews band is a little misunderstood by some of its legions of fans and Slipknot certainly falls under that category. You got a lot of people that got into Slipknot for reasons that make total sense, but are different than why a musician or someone who takes music seriously would get into the band. So it super important band. And one that I think will be fascinating to dive into looking tonight at the group's third, and in my opinion, best album. Volume three, the subliminal verses is what we're getting into. And let's get into it by looking at some of those nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Volume three, the subliminal verses was released on May 25th, 2004. It's hard to believe this album is already 16 plus years old. It's produced by Rick Rubin. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It's the only Slipknot album to be produced by Rick Rubin, and for good reason, as we'll find out. It was recorded in The Mansion in Laurel Canyon, very famous musical uh, setting there in Los Angeles, California. The album had six singles released. Duality was the lead single released on May 4th, so a few weeks before the official release of the album. Followed by Vermilion, Vermilion Part 2, Before I Forget, which went on to win a Grammy Award for Best Metal Performance, mm-hmm. The Nameless, and The Blister Exists. You're looking at, you know, almost a two-year range of singles being released from this album. And it's, it is important to add The Nameless. That was actually the live version that was released, but it's still off of this album. Going through Slipknot's personnel uh, requires a little extra time versus other bands. nine members in Slipknot. So it's just a very thoroughbred musical statement that's being made here. They numbered themselves. I think the original intent was for the band to always just go by their numbers. There was this whole anonymity thing that was going on with Slipknot. So we'll run through the numbers. Number zero is Sid Wilson, who is on turntables. Number one, Joey Jordanson, drums, who's no longer with the band, but obviously we're going through the lineup from this particular album. Number two, Paul Gray on bass, who tragically passed away a few years after this album was completed. Number three, Chris Fennon, one of the two extra percussionists. Number four is Jim Root on guitars, who also joins Corey Taylor in the side project Stone Sour. Number five is Craig Jones on samplers and keyboards. Number six, Sean Clown is his nickname. Crahan, also on percussions. So there's a drum set player and two percussionists in Slipknot and Sean Crayon is the other percussionist. Number seven is Mick Thompson, the other guitarist and rounding out the group, the ninth member, but number eight is vocalist Corey Taylor, who's become much more than just the singer of Slipknot. He's also the lead singer of Stone Sour 
has done a few other projects and has kind of become one of the, the faces of, of metal, become a really important uh, person and persona within the metal world. The Supplemental Verses was widely beloved by critics. If you look at both metal outlets and other mainstream outlets, this album received virtually universal positive praise. It went platinum in the United States with sales of more than 1 million copies, which is a big deal for a metal album and achieved gold and platinum status in many other countries. So T, this is a very heralded work within the metal world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, you know, this unique genre of metal, which has evolved into a lot of different designations. New metal is obviously the one that became sort of the most um, renowned and, and mainstream. But, I, you know, I like to think of it often as groove metal. And, you know, I think that Pantera with their Cowboys from Hell album really introduced this idea. And, you know, you saw it evolve a lot into a lot of great bands, none that really reached, I think, the mainstream appeal, if you will, that Pantera did. What's interesting about Slipknot is certainly, I think, that genre is at the foundation of what they do and what, what has always been a part of their music and their catalog. But one of the reasons I'm excited to talk through this record is th- they blend so many different genres of metal and just genres of music. And every song almost has its own uh, designation of what genre is sort of the primary and what genre is sort of the secondary of each. And that's kind of the way I was listening to it and when we go track by track i think it'll be kind of interesting to note some of that but ultimately i think what this is is experimental metal you know and i think that that term gets thrown around in music way too often and it's assumed that for something to be experimental that it has to be spacey or it has to be avant-garde or it has to be psychedelic this is obviously none of the above there are some moments where you get into some of those elements. And one of the things I really like about Slipknot is there are just no rules. You know, I mean, the band has never, whether it's song structure, whether it's blending of genres, blending of sections, there are just simply no rules to this band. And they pull that off very nicely. And this album probably beyond any others in their catalog. And I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit of some of the other stuff they've done is as much of a no rules album as I can think of, as far as when you really dig into it and you really realize all of the different things that are being tried, all the different things that are being sort of experimented with. And it makes for a fascinating listen and a a really, uh, interesting and cool uh, pick by you. So it'll be fun to talk through. The band had what you would describe as a unsuccessful relationship with Rick Rubin. You know, Rick Rubin just really seen by so many as sort of a musical genius, or at least somebody who can maximize the strength of bands. He deserves a lot of credit for this album, but the band never worked with him again because they did not enjoy the process. Corey Taylor described Rick Rubin as sort of not being around. I didn't realize this, but it sounds like Rick Rubin does a lot of stuff from afar. He doesn't really engage with the bands in a way that maybe the other producers that Slipknot worked with, Ross Robinson being a good example. He's a little bit more 
aloof, a little bit more distant and calling the shots from a less direct relationship sort of place. However, one of the other members of Slipknot did say that Rick Rubin gave a lot of suggestions that helped get the album to the place that you just described, T, which which was this sort of no rules, try this, try that sort of deal. So I think it's important to highlight Rick Rubin's contributions to the album. Clearly, he had an impact when you look at the quality of this record. But it's very obvious that whatever he did didn't connect with the band for anything long term, and they quickly moved on to working with other people. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting aspect of this album. And I will say that no Slipknot album sounded this way before, and none has sounded this way since in terms of the composition. So clearly his mark was left. It just must not have been a mark that the band really approved of. Yeah, the, the Rick Rubin experience for, for many is, is fascinating in that some really point to it as an important time period for their group. And oftentimes it gets pointed to as a period of turbulence. You know, it's hard to know where that comes from. It's hard to know if, if he's, you know, kind of a control freak that wants to take over the creative process or, or if he's overly demanding, which I could see, or if he's to your point, more disengaged in, in the areas where bands like to be engaged with their producer. I, I don't know. It's very complicated. I know he wrote a book a few years ago. I've yet to read it, um, which obviously will be from his own perspective. So not sure how much of the sides of the story you'd get from that. But there is an interesting, um, you know, there are some producers, you know, a, a handful or two of them that have really illustrious kind of fascinating, intriguing histories, either working with a single band or working with multiple. Rick Rubin obviously has worked with multiple, but I would put him under that category. It's interesting you you kind of say what some of the varying feedback was just from this one band, because I think Rick Rubin saw a lot of that throughout his career. The album followed a, a really smash debut, the self-titled Slipknot album, which actually had sort of a couple hit singles. Amazingly enough, Wait and Bleed kind of being the song that put them on the map. The band followed that with Iowa, which is an album that you know will live forever in metal lore. Uh, very acclaimed, very beloved. Not as commercially successful at all as what came after it, but one of the heaviest albums I've ever heard, um, certainly a dark album. The band kind of says that the first album was the band having fun and the second album was the result of you know everything that comes with success and demands and the things that a bunch of guys from Iowa don't really set out to do and then all of a sudden wake up and here it is. So volume three sort of became almost the medicine for all of that. It had a rocky start. Corey Taylor apparently was just like hammered for the first several months of the sessions and nothing was getting done. And then kind of the switch flipped and things started happening and, and the band found the creative energy to put together, you know, these compositions at a time. I wouldn't say it came out of chaos. I don't get that vibe from the research, but Certainly a, a band that was trying to figure out how to take the next step. And they certainly took a step with this album that, that led to, I would say, longevity. You know, we've looked at a lot of albums on the podcast that have been the pivot point for a band's longevity. And yeah. Subliminal Verses is probably that for this group. Almost feels kind of like their revolver, you know, just the period where they kind of said, we don't want to just play heavy metal, new metal, 
speed metal, whatever you want to call it, type music forever. We want to do things that are a little bit more dynamic and different. All right, T, let's, uh, I want to hear your wondrous story with the nine dudes from Iowa. So let's get into it. Let's hear your Slipknot wonder story. T, are you a maggot? And if so, how did you become one? <laughs> uh, I can't say that I am. You know, I, I do. I celebrate Slipknot's catalog. I have seen them in concert, but I would not say that I'm a, a maggot per se. My wonder story, really, in any time I think of this band, I think of going to the concert with you, which was one of those where um, it was a little bit like on the Winger episode when we talked about, you know, you sort of telling me, hey, you got to come to see and play acoustic phenomenal just trust me do it and of course it was great similar with slipknot i don't know that i would have gone on my own but you know you had said this is really a band you should see i think you had already seen them a couple times it was at a big arena which was kind of an interesting atmosphere you know for those guys uh, open floor and all that stuff that's my you know what i always think of when i listen to this band is that show and, you know, I hadn't been to a lot of metal shows, um, certainly not as many as you had, um, other than, you know, I mean, Ozfest and Metallica and Typo and that sort of stuff, obviously. But part of what was fascinating, well, most of what was fascinating to me beyond just what was being done on stage was watching the crowd. You know, and I mentioned a few episodes ago that documentary that I watched about Grindcore called Slaves to the Grind. And part of what was fascinating about that is not necessarily the music, but the, but the following, you know, the, the passion from the fan base and, you know, going to a Slipknot show was, was great in, in seeing the kind of wide open, open floor scenario. Cause you could really see people pretty well from what, where we were sitting and the way they connect musically and lyrically and the way they know the material and know the, often complex changes and those sorts of things. It's almost like going to a tool show. You know, you can tell the people that really understand their music for the most part. Now there are of course some that just want to, you know, get into the pit and just want to pump their fists and you know, all that stuff. And you know, Hey, whatever, that's fine. But one of the things I really remember about the Slipknot show we went to was just the passion and connection from the fans and from the attendees, you know, the people that were there, were there because they really dug into this band. They really loved this band. They really understood and felt a very deep connection. And that was probably the coolest thing that I remember beyond how they sounded or what they played. I mean, I couldn't even tell you, you know, their set list or any of the, I don't, I don't really recall those things as much as I recall just kind of having an appreciation for those that were in attendance and how almost thrilled they all were to be seeing this band in this setting. And that you was just, very cool. You've just nailed, you know, comparison number two to Dave Matthews, which is you're not a passive fan of Slipknot. You're an active yeah. fan. You know, you, you love the band. You go to the shows and you're engaged. I mean, it, that was one thing about, you know, all Slipknot shows is the, the, the audience is so engaged with the band. Same with Dave Matthews band, you know, you're waiting to hear that certain song and you're living and dying by what each member is doing. And, and there's a certain, you know, consistency to the presentation that 
everybody kind of connects with automatically. Uh, this is not a passive experience. It's a, it's a very active experience if you're a Slipknot fan. And there's only a handful of bands that are like that in individual genres. And Slipknot is certainly, you know, probably joined by a couple other metal bands, but I think they're, you know, they're, they're at the pinnacle of metal bands if you look at, you know, what, how passionate the fan base is about the group. Well, that's good, man. I, I'm glad to hear that the show was a good experience. I know that when we were driving home, you, your eyes were just a little bit bigger than they were when we drove to the show. Cause I think it was, <laughs> I think it was an experience um, that showed you a few things about, you know, a band that you didn't know about before. Yep. So uh, my initial wonder story with Slipknot would be um, 2001. Uh, I went to the Ohio state university and um, Ohio state actually was weird. It was on a quarter system. So it started later than other schools. So I was one of the rare people that actually was home waiting to go to school when September 11th, 2001 happened. So that happened. And then like just a few days later, I went to school and it was a a crazy experience to do all of that at once. And and 9-11 had a, a, a profound impact on all art forms and all life experiences, you know, for those who didn't live through it, it was almost similar to what we're going through here in 2020, where like your everyday existence was impacted for, you know, a period of time. It certainly impacted music and specifically my musical taste, because I, I, I went through a phase in 2001 where I just wanted to listen to nothing but heavy, kind of angry music. So along comes this album, Iowa, by this band Slipknot, who I was familiar with, because I had some roommates who were into the first album. and picked it up and, and just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with its aggression, its musicality, but just more than anything, the unique spot that it had in the world of metal. So I, I really got into Iowa. When this album came along, as you mentioned earlier, I was doing the music reviewing thing and it was 2004 was like the year of the Slipknot. And one year this album came out and, you know, really became uh, an important album for me in the mid 2000s went and reviewed the show and then somewhere in there also interviewed Corey Taylor, which was just uh, an incredible experience. He's such a smart guy, very observant about his own art and about the band. It was before the album came out, but the single had been out duality. So we had a chance to really preview the album and hear about what was on it and, and how it was different from what came out before. And by this point, he was very clear about this record. I mean, it, I know he struggled at first in the making of it, but it was very obvious to him that this was something that was going to be making a, a grand statement for this band and a really important statement that would, you know, separate it from its peers. All of that kind of happened at once, and the albums they've put out since have all been worth checking out and, uh, and been able to see the band a couple times since then as well. So. Um, Super important band, not just in the metal genre for me, but uh, just overall. So, but it all goes back to that that whole musical nine eleven thing. That whole, you know, wanting to hear things that were dark and heavy and things that kind of went with that time. Mm-hmm. And Iowa was just the perfect album for that. And Subliminal Verses came along and did a lot of things that Iowa never did, which opened the band up. But you can't take away what they were able to achieve on that second album as well. Love, love Iowa. Yeah. It's, it's obviously a, a bit more focused than subliminal verses. So not as experimental, more straightforward, but uh, yeah, I mean that, you know, look that the first, if you go back and listen to the first three albums from this band, 
the diversity and the experimentation of it is really um, what makes that certainly that early catalog. And I think that continued, you know, I don't think that necessarily changed, but that's a, that's a trifecta uh, that you just never really saw from another metal band, even those that were very influential, like Pantera, Metallica, you know, some of those, um, this was a whole new level of taking this metal genre and seeing what you can do with it. Very well said. All right. See, we got nine members. We got 14 tracks. We got like a bajillion (laughs) different sections to go through. So uh, let's do this. Let's drop the needle and put the needle on the record and go track by track. My first question to Corey Taylor when I interviewed him was, is there more melody on this album? And he said, oh, there's a lot more melody and a whole lot more. And I'll always remember him saying that because it was a great opening description of the album. Prelude 3.0 kind of appears initially as just a throwaway intro, but it's really not. It actually becomes kind of a song. So let's hear how volume three, the subliminal verses opens with Prelude 3.0. You mentioned kind of groove metal, you know, and the comparisons to Pantera. And right off the bat, you kind of get this almost waltzy groove thing going on. And yeah, it's not the most complete song. It is kind of an opening track, but it's kind of cool the way it settles in at the end with the loud guitars and Corey's voice and everything that's going on. Yeah, I definitely think it serves as uh, serves as an intro, but certainly an intro plus, you know, to your point. And sets the tone nicely it's a little spooky a lot of dynamics going on and um yeah i think it kind of eases you into it this is the type of record if you came in too hot too soon it might just you know your head might just pop off your body and then you're in real trouble then you're decapitated Um, yeah i mean you you got a then you got a real problem (laughs) Uh, you know i think it's a nice way to kind of easy into it Okay, now it is time for your head to pop off with The Blister Exists. How about it, see, marching snares? What, what, a, uh, what a statement. It's a, it's a real groove metal masterpiece, I think. Right. And, um, this again, I, I think the way I'm going to kind of go about track by track is each song kind of has a primary style and then a secondary style. And this one is pretty much all groove to your point. You said it, you know, that was the first thing that, that you said. Uh, and I completely agree. There's a, there's some new metal elements to this as well. Um, but yeah, that marching drum part with, you know, I am the damaged one, the way they bring that back for the ending is great. You know, so you get kind of a couple different looks at that to really kind of pull the song together. You know, this, this one's a, a bit more, I'm not surprised that it eventually found its way to being a single because th- this sounds a lot like corn and some, some of the new metal stuff of that day. It was pretty commercial for, for Slipknot. But, you know, it, it reminded me of uh, one of my favorite groove metal bands of all time is Machine Head. 
And that kind of bounce really reminds me, uh, and that sort of backbeat kind of reminds me of those guys, um, particularly in the chorus that, you know, the, the I am, but what am I, you know, section. So th- this is going to be a, a fun track by track. The songs are very sectionalized. So uh, you almost have to take the track and then piece it together or pull it apart. Uh, but all in all, I actually think the blister exists as one of the more focused tracks on the record and just being a straight up, you know, groove metal gem. So T you've just walked us right into the next and perhaps final comparison between Slipknot and Dave Matthews band, a very wise man once told me, Hey, listen to a Dave Matthews song and just keep listening because there's going to be likely some section in that song that you like. You just have to know how to get there. Who's the smart fella that told you that? Huh? That was a real wise man. Yeah. Sounds like it. Told me that about 15 years ago. Probably very handsome too. He's devastatingly handsome. Yep. Devilishly. Yep. With a great beard. <laughs> and is right now shirtless behind a microphone. That's right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> shirtless for no reason. Yeah, none. Zero. But uh, the blister exists is a great example of that because, you know, may- maybe you don't dig the verses, but the chorus comes along. You like that. But then the marching snares, I will tell you what a theatric moment of a Slipknot show when the two percussionists just kind of come out of nowhere and they've got these marching snares and they're playing along and, and the sound is just so huge. Yeah. Uh, it's a great live song of a Slipknot show. And I think rarely do they not play it. But I remember seeing the band just shortly before the album came out. And when I saw the marching snare part, I was like, okay, this album is going to be amazing. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. got marching snares on it, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, the adventure continues with track three, three nil. Some of the best Slipknot songs, uh, it's just all about what it, what it goes through to get you to the chorus. And 3 Nulls chorus, which you just played a little bit of, comes a little bit later in the song than you might think, but it's got this buildup that gets you there. And once you get there, it's kind of the payoff. Slipknot are the kings of this sort of musical payoff thing with their choruses and their middle sections. And Yeah, I, very well said. There is a payoff element to these guys. You know, this one takes you from sort of speed grindcore. I mean, this is, there's some grindcore elements in this with, you know, literally that, that grindcore beat that you're hearing from the drumming and the vocals that sort of layer on top of it. And it takes you into, you know, I, this is a pop chorus. So take the guitars and turn them into synths, take the vocals and maybe just, you know, ease them up a little bit. As far as the aggression, you are looking at a straight up pop melody you know, something that you would have easily heard in a new wave song or a pop song at any point at any uh, decade. And these guys clearly on this record proved that they were not afraid to throw in some hooks. And there's certainly one there on three nil. So very rare that a band can take you from a true sort of grind core section, which when they're saying, this is not my world, that's straight up what it is. And then the, you know, the goodbye section, which I guess you could deem the chorus, even though it's not basic, you know, traditional song structure is pop. So uh, really like three and all gives you some really, really, I would say varying, you know, looks within one single track. I like that take. You and I have always been soft on bands with two vocalists. You know, think about 311, yeah. Typo yep. Negative, Linkin Park, 
Slipknot has one singer, but he's really two vocalists. You know, Corey Taylor's got a great scream, and he also sings melodically very, very well on album. This album wasn't the first time that they did that by any means, but it was the most complete top to bottom of mixing the the various voices that Corey Taylor brings to the table. Yeah, he's much more than just a singer; he's a vocalist, and the things that he does. Uh, to pace these songs are incredibly important to, again, the diversity that you're pointing out so well. Track four, the ultimate track four hit single type of sequence uh, is the band's, I believe, their biggest hit to date, and that is Duality. See, what do you think of duality? Yeah, this was a hit. I mean, this is a song that, you know, a lot of people, even just that section right there, may not realize they knew, but pretty recognizable. And again, pop elements, strip down the guitar to something a little bit more moderate, ease the vocals up a little bit. And that's a pop melody in that chorus. So, um, but then I, I think there's a lot of new metal elements to this as well, which is kind of part of, I think, what made it fit nicely into a single in 2004. The All I've Got Is Insane section is very new metal. So, you know, again, blending these different, it's a very experimental song too. You know, there's some kind of alt metal type elements to it as well. And I think that was part of its appeal. You know, there was stuff at this time coming out from System of a Down and some of these other bands that were getting radio airplay and getting some kind of mainstream attention and acclaim. And, you know, I think a lot of that had to do with the ability to be experimental within this new metal genre, but also be hooky and uh, duality's got them hooks, you know? So uh, not surprising that it's one of their more sort of renowned and uh, beloved songs, I think from the super hardcore Slipknot fans, as well as the people that just kind of enjoyed what they heard at times. I could gush about duality for an entire episode. I just think it's a really important song, not just to Slipknot, but to its genre. Underrated is just the riff meister aspect of the core riff. I mean, that is, that is just like pure. And to your point, very, very simple. It is like a pop melody. But really, in the end, I mean, I would just say, we, we talk about the Dolly Willie rule, you know, is a song so good that Dolly partner Willie Nelson could cover it and pull it off and have it still be great. I think duality is getting there. There's two songs on this album that I think are in that category. Yeah, yeah, you know, I see that. Yep. Duality can work in so many different ways from the hooks chorus is memorable the riff is something you could do a lot with from an instrumentation standpoint it's got a really cool breakdown in the middle you know kind of slip not cut it in half add some huge percussion sort of thing it's just a song with with amazing pace you know the song's like a track meet and by the time you get done with it it does feel a little bit more like an experience than just a song but does, does duality fulfill the Dolly Willie rule at all for you? Well, now I'm just, you know, dying to hear Dolly Parton do a version of this. You know, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should, uh, I don't know, you think she's on Twitter? Maybe we should hit her up and just ask her to indulge us. What might that sound like? Is that kind of a, hey, it's the only way, it's only stopped again, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, I, you know, uh, yeah, maybe we Willie should. would be good too. It's the only way <laughs> to slowly stop, you know. That's pretty good. The fact that you nailed both of those pretty strong. Yeah, I think the Dolly Willie rule applies nicely to a song like that, certainly. I think it applies to one other, and it is not track five, <laughs> Opium of the People. But let's get into that one. So now it's like, it's like they're just showing off now. It's like, hey, look at how melodic we can be and how much we can mix that with this sheer aggression with the guitars and everything. But I don't know. How do you see this one in the album? It's okay. It's a little bit of a comeback down to earth, I think, from duality, which uh, you can tell the, the thoughtfulness of the, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, track order and track progression here. You can tell that there was some thoughtfulness there. Whenever something got a little poppy and a little catchy, usually the following track is something pretty abrasive, you know? And when things started to look like they were going to get completely out of hand, seems like things are brought back to the center a little bit, um, like they are on the next track. So I do think that there was uh, some thoughtfulness as to the entire body of uh, the subliminal verses and, and what it was trying to do not just track by track, but kind of as a whole on this, I think you used the word, good word ride that it sort of takes you on, which is what great albums do. So yeah, I think this one was a little bit of a, uh, I mean, look, it's still, it's speedy, you know, it's, it's one that, I mean, we played the poppy section, but you know, the rest of it's pretty, uh, pretty aggressive. So, you know, I think it does what it needs to do there on track five coming off of what I'm sure they presumed pretty early on was going to be one of their uh, more popular songs. And now for something completely different. This is a song that was played over the PA as the band took the stage during this tour. And that song is Circle. So they played this on the PA before the band even came out? Yeah, the lights went down. Interesting. They played circle over the PA as the band was taking the stage, and then they went right into the blister exists like immediately. So were people like swaying and singing along, or? Well, it was before the album came out. This this is on the initial oh, tour. Okay. So there was a lot of holy shit. Like, what is this? You know, that this is something yeah. completely different from Slipknot. People almost didn't know what to do to it because it's not your typical Slipknot song. So <laughs> there was a kind of a buzz amongst the crowd of, wow, if this is the new album, then we're really looking forward to hearing some of these new directions that the band will take. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a, you know, it's a very pretty song that the, the ending is pretty trippy with the drum beat that gets brought in, which is cool. It, it kind of, again, these guys never these guys never let you get too comfortable, you know, <laughs> right when you're kind of settling in on something, you get kind of either hit upside the head or you get kind of brought down to, to kind of a, a different level, which is again, part of the experience of kind of plowing through this album. But uh, this is a nice way to kind of treat the middle of the record dynamically to go a little bit more quiet, 
you know, certainly almost a little bit more kind of folky per Slipknot standards. And yeah, I think Circle um, certainly accomplishes that as this midway sort of pivot point on this record. Circle sets up the second half of the album, which begins with Welcome. Well, the the percussionists have all sorts of toys at their disposal. And one of the Uh, things that they use is um, trash can lids. I was going to say, if that's a rim shot, that's uh, that's pretty uh, (laughs) powerful and amazing. Okay, so that's actually a I think that's the guy smashing a trash can lid or something that replicated that. Nice. If you you ever watch clips of Slipknot Live, the percussionists are just, they're so fun to watch because they're just hitting all sorts of different things. I know that that open note in duality that they hit during the middle section is, is some kind of trash can device or something like that. So, and maybe they just put these things together to look a certain way, but they were blending a lot of different percussion instruments that would not be seen as typical that that you wouldn't be able to just walk into guitar center and buy, let's put it that way. You might (laughs) find it at home Depot more than you'd find it at guitar center, but welcome does get back into that kind of rollicking thing and Corey's singing pretty aggressively here and it kind of rolls along doesn't it yeah it's it's the heaviest song i think on the album this this maybe takes you back to iowa a little bit almost has sort of an industrial feel to it you know with that crazy kick drum and but groove elements to it as well right so uh yeah i think this is a pretty quintessential heavy Slipknot song that kind of brings you again, you know, thinking about the track progression, takes you down a little bit on circle and then certainly riles you back up on, on track seven. Welcome. Kind of a reminder too of, of just how great of a drummer Joey Jordanson was. Uh, Unfortunately for him, a a health issue virtually made him stop playing the drums. He has a spine condition, probably from all that work during the years of playing with Slipknot that Mm. he had to leave the band and he was replaced with Jay Weinberg, who's Max Weinberg's son. Oh, really? Yeah. Who's the current drummer of Slipknot. He's, you know, amazing drummer as well. His dad was pretty good too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about groove, you know, uh, old old man Max had that, but I'm I'm sure, I'm sure Jay can do some things that his pops probably (laughs) guess. A number of things. Yeah. Yeah. But Joey Jordanson really, really key member of the nine uh, during this era of the band for sure. All right. They kind of march back into commercial territory with track eight, a track that is repeated a few songs later. And that is Vermilion. job on the clip there maestro t because that is the the key part of the song again finding that kind of hooky chorus to go into an adventurous set of other sections uh, vermilion was a hit for the band and one of the singles that we mentioned early on yeah it's it's pretty you know it's a very poppy chorus section with great layering you know the 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 sweeping effect of that chorus section is really nice you know and it's obviously bookended by something that's uh, a bit more rowdy so again you're just getting those 
really cool, unique dynamics of, you know, knowing that you're going to get to it, but enjoying the ride until you do type of a thing. And, you know, that's really what this album defines. I think Vermillion's uh, this sort of definition song of subliminal verses. So, and obviously not surprised it was one of the singles. Every Slipknot album seems to have a uh, kind of an, an homage to the fans or a, a theme for the fans or some kind of anthem for the maggots. And Iowa, Iowa has the heretic anthem, which has that, you know, uplifting chorus. If you're 555, then I'm 666, you know, and it's this live song and everyone just goes nuts during it. You could tell it's like this <laughs> anthem thing. Pulse of the Maggots is certainly uh, holds that place on volume three. And that's track nine, Pulse of the Maggots. Yeah, Corey's kind of letting it go on this song. What what always stands out to me, and one of the distractions of the album is that siren or whatever they're using during those chorus sections. It, it, I always thought, oh gosh, I wish they would take those out because it just gets on my nerves a little bit. There's a lot of that stuff going on. There's a lot of voice dynamics and sounds, a lot of sound effects. That there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here, and hard to say how much of that was Ruben, how much of that was kind of the artistic vision of the band. It enhances the experimental nature of it, but sometimes I agree it can get a little distracting of what you're kind of trying to focus on. But this is the thing I do like about Pulse of the Maggots. This is just a like old school hardcore song. This is, you know, something that you would have heard in the early mid nineties in that sort of underground hardcore genre if you strip down the production and you just kind of go with the riff and the vocal style on top of it which is very aggressive and and again sounds back and forthy almost sounds like a prong type thing um even though to your point it's one vocalist but that's what i like about this one is this is just like vintage hardcore metal which was a genre that never really had the ability to hit mainstream a little bit like grindcore and that it had a very underground following. Uh, but I feel like that's what you're getting here on this one. And probably part of the reason why it made it a nice fit to sort of be to your point, this more anthemic, you know, ode to the fans. So the previously discussed Vermillion was nominated for a Grammy for best metal performance in 2005. It did not win. Our next song was nominated in 2006, and it did win. Before I forget. T, does this song win a Grammy in your heart? <laughs> Well, obviously, it's always very cool when bands like this are acclaimed and bands like this are uh, acknowledged, you know, so as nonsense as some of the uh, those awards can be, you know, the fact that they're able to provide some uh, recognition for bands like this and songs like this is is always a good thing. Yeah, this is pretty anthemic. You know, I remember this one from the show, kind of the response it got and yeah, this is probably, I, I would think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is probably their most well-known song, I would think. 
Yeah, th- probably this or Duality. I mean, they had, they had a couple singles on the last couple albums that have done well too. But yeah, I would say one of those two. Yeah. I mean, a lot of pop, clearly, uh, in some new metal kind of elements. So, you know, I think it's similar to duality and sort of the, the genres it was capturing, the styles it was capturing. Uh, and obviously the appeal um, was similar. Uh, the middle section, I think, is the coolest part, that breakdown. You know, so obviously the, you know, the, the chorus is a real fist pumper and all that, which is great. But I think that the way it breaks down in the middle is probably the least memorable for many, but I think kind of the coolest part of the song. But, you know, this is a pretty special tune in sort of the entire, I think, spectrum of, of metal or speed metal, thrash metal, heavy metal, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, it's, it is nice that they were uh, rewarded with the Grammy. I assume they, did they show up and give a speech and all that? It's a great question. Did they, did they give the Grammy back now? I mean, did, <laughs> did they keep it? I don't know. It just seems. Uh, I don't, I don't know whether they showed up because I don't believe that best metal performance was televised. In yeah. 2006. That's probably one of those that doesn't make the, the yeah, on here. Not in 2006, but uh, you know, to, this is the second Dolly Willie song to me. I, I just think from a composition perspective, the chorus could work in a lot of different genres. I do agree. I think the middle section won the Grammy. I don't think it's the chorus. I do really like the way the song enters, you know, it's kind of a no frills, just, get that riff and make it chug. And I, I think before I forget, it's kind of a, kind of a masterpiece in its simplicity. This and duality to me represents an almost perfect marriage between creativity and commercialism. You know, both songs had great commercial appeal, yet both are completely different from anything you've ever heard before. And I remember after the show that we went to together, I, I think before I forget was the song of the night. I think I remember saying that afterwards. It was like, wow, that, that song really really was uh was a big charge live so yeah it was very memorable so the band revisits vermilion with this kind of acoustic rendition vermilion part two and and that's what you see in track 11 no i don't want to be this but i won't let this build up inside It's a cool coda that they decided to do. I think it would have been more powerful as an outro to the original Vermilion to do something that, that kind of combined the two instead of waiting a few songs later. But clearly there was some statement being made there in terms of the sequence. But where do you see this one fitting on the album? I kind of agree with you. But, you know, again, it's thinking about track progression. You bring it up basically to some would argue its peak with Before I Forget, and then you bring it down. You know, you can really sense the attempt here for peaks and valleys, you know, and, and I think Vermilion part two probably didn't need to be its own track necessarily, but you know, if you're looking at kind of how to bring things down a little bit from track 10 and there were probably plenty of moments where Corey or somebody in the band, whoever else may have said this, this hook is something that could be mellow or something that could be really stripped down. Somebody probably said, man, that, chorus section to vermilion i mean that would sound pretty cool as a sort of dreary acoustic-y kind of stripped down thing and i think it screams rick rubin to be honest with you very well could I, have think been. It, I think it could have been him yeah because even even the way that vermilion part two is produced it's got a very rubin kind of warm sound to it it almost sounds like it was his idea yeah yeah i, I wouldn't be surprised but you know 
cool that they did it, you know, brings an interesting dynamic as you kind of head down the, the back stretch here of, uh, of the subliminal verses kicking off the back stretch is the nameless. That relationship between the loud and the quiet and the powerful and the melodic and all those sort of things, almost done here in a such a clearly separated way. I mean, whereas <laughs> other songs combined it and created some flow between them, the nameless almost, you know, does this kind of stop in its tracks thing. But again, opens up into this, this very gorgeous sort of chorus and it, it creates a real dichotomy. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty wild song in that. I mean, <laughs> the 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 changes are are drastic to say the least. I I think they pull it together really nicely by taking that quiet section and and making it loud and triumphant at the end. You know, and again, that, that's uh, there's a lot of cool moments in this in this record of the band kind of saying, "Hey, this can be loud and aggressive, and also this can be soft." And really, on the nameless, you see that that main hooky section presented as both. And that's cool. And I think it's a great way to end the track. Track 13, maybe the only moment on the simple little verses that really didn't need to be here. I think it's the Dufferoo and that is the virus of life. Lone spawn the album feels like it's I wouldn't say too much, but it's it's certainly not doing anything that contributes to uh the 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 kind of overall picture of this particular album. It seems like just a little bit extra buried at the end. And uh I don't know. What what do you think of the virus of life? I agree with you. you know, I think that at times there was almost too intentional of an effort on the track progression. So, you know, I, I think it was thoughtful. But sometimes that can be too thoughtful. And I think there may have been an element here of, boy, the nameless really had this quiet section and this, you know, very melodic thing. And then it sort of peaks at the end. The nameless is as traditional of a song structure as you'll get as far as um, trajectory, as well as kind of verse, chorus, verse, middle type stuff. And it almost seems like they felt the need to throw the virus of life in there just to show, hey, let's remind everybody there are no rules on this record and some of that's cool but also this one just is a little too wild i mean i don't i don't really see the the direction or the um sort of purpose of this one as the second to last track it doesn't have the feel that the other songs have you know it, it's yeah it just feels a little mechanical yeah i think so and it, and it kind of feels like they did it um trying to make a statement rather than trying to make a good track well, the album opens unconventionally and it closes unconventionally, but in both cases, I think you get something really, really interesting and worth paying attention to as the bookends of volume three, and that is Danger Keep Away. Without hearing what I have to say Without hearing what I have to say
I love what Craig Jones is doing there with the keyboards, with that sort of it's uh, like a distorted Fender Rhodes. That sound they achieved was so dynamic and so cool. To end so up. cool. So cool. It, the whole thing kind of reminds me of No Quarter a little bit, at least that sort of soft section of just really stripping everything down. But yeah, that sound that they're getting, um, you're probably right. It is sort of something related to a Rhodes is really cool. I, I think it's an awesome way to close the record. You know, it, it's definitely different for them to come out with some like, m- you know, majestic metal thing or something too crazy like the previous track. It just wouldn't have felt right. But to wrap it up in a bow, to your point, the bookends of this album are really interesting. And to wrap it up with Danger Keep Away is very stripped down, you know, with this awesome trippy just vocal over keys thing. I I think it's great. I think it's just a very unexpected, you know, very thoughtful and very, very interesting way to, to close this up. Well, we are in agreement there. Let's see if we are in agreement as to this simple question. T does volume three, the subliminal verses, does it matter? No, I think it does within its genre, certainly. You know, I mean, it was, again, this idea of experimental metal really hadn't been done before to this magnitude. Now, you had prog metal. You had sort of the early onset of this new metal vibe. You know, industrial was kind of its own experiment and its own thing for a time being. This groove metal, which is such a big part of Slipknot's sound was very important but i think this is as experimental as any quote-unquote metal record you know probably in metal history which is great and certainly makes it important i think certainly influenced a lot of bands that either were in this genre or wanted to get into this genre that you know there don't have to be rules you know it doesn't all have to be chop distortion guitar and it doesn't all have to be the sort of drum bass pocket that you typically get with a lot of this stuff and you know these elements of percussion and these elements of keyboard and all these things that are at work here are part of what made not just this record pretty special but the band pretty special you know in in its um in sort of what it was trying to do and and i think if you look at slipknot's catalog i mean that you know I, i personally prefer iowa over this record if i had to pick one but this album was really important, you know, to the band, you know, the Rick Rubin element is interesting, but those that are at least interested in how metal music has evolved within the last, you know, couple few decades. Um, I think this is an important listen. How about you? Does it matter? I think this album is a good example of much more than it mattering is just the fact that it's an awesome album. You know, it it truly is just in the true sense of the word. It's just an album that kind of leaves you awestruck musically uh, from a thematic perspective, just what this band was doing. I think the initial response to this album is much more important than any longevity that it does or doesn't have. So I'd be a little softer on does it matter and, and much more just on the idea that, man, is it good? It's just a very, very high quality work of music. Like I said at the top, this group is a work of art more than a a metal band. Yeah. And the other thing about Slipknot, when you look at, does it matter? They don't have contemporaries. You know, there were a couple spinoff bands, kind of Mudvayne was a a little Slipknot-ish. Mushroomhead came along and tried to do the whole thing. But 
for the most part, Slipknot is so original that I, I would hesitate to say anything they do matters in any sort of way because you kind of nailed it earlier. To their fans, this band is is extremely important. But they weren't making things that were meant to stand tests of time and be commercial to a mainstream audience at all. And this is just an example to me of, it's an awesome album that will overcome much more of its importance or its how much it matters to people more than just listen to it. It's great. All right, T, let's get into the final cut. Is the subliminal verses for you? On the turntable, is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? Ooh. <laughs> collecting dust for me, just that um, sometimes I do think it, it lacks focus. And that's part of what makes it good, but also part of what makes it a little wild. Um, you've got to be in the right mind frame. You've got to be in the right setting to really be able to sort of concentrate and dig in on this. I, I think it's fascinating and I think it's a great record. For me, I don't, you know, see the need to own it and spin it regularly, but I think it's held up extremely well. I really respect the experimental nature of it, which is, you know, kind of why um, I wouldn't, you know, put it in the for sale bin by any means. But, you know, I prefer Iowa. I think Slipknot was at their best when they were really focused. And maybe that was part of what they, in hindsight, didn't love about the experience in working with Rick Rubin is that, you know, things got a little scattered, but you know, it's an important record. It's an important listen. And it's one that if you're at all into any of these genres, groove metal, hardcore, new metal, anything, you know, you got to listen to it and absorb it and, and enjoy the experience of it. But for me, it's, it's collecting dust all in all. How about yourself? It's in the collection for me. Slipknot is not a band that you can listen to at all times, you know, I think you nailed it. It's, it, you're not going to pull out Slipknot on a, a July afternoon when you're kind of hanging out outside. <laughs> so th- there are just some limitations just to the genre itself, but without question, um, I think it's an, a truly awesome work. I think it's something that you listen to each time you hear things that are different. I think it follows that kind of Dave Matthews thing you said, which is just listen to each song. You'll find something in that song that you connect with or that you appreciate or that you love. And that goes a long way. I do love Iowa. I agree with you on that. But to me, this album just captured something from a musical perspective that the first two albums did not. And the ensuing albums have failed to uh, capture that kind of broad scope of, I agree with you. It's a little unfocused. There's no doubt about it, but the flip side of that is it's extremely creative Oh yeah, and it's very genre bending and it has no rules and you combine all those things. And that's something that you want in your collection. So in the collection for me, I listen to it regularly, but you know, you, you, there, there's times where Slipknot just doesn't scratch the itch. You know, you got, you got to find other sounds and other things. So excellent. All right. Well, let's uh, close up shop here. With a little uh, in your head. Oh, Dolores. Oh, Dolores. Dolores really cooking there. <laughs> cooking with gas. <laughs> All right, T, give me three songs that are in your head right now. The first is an 80s rap tune by uh, a group called Mantronics, who put out a classic record. It was called Mantronics The Album. 
and kind of uh, this, you know, hip hop uh, electronica type uh, rap genre that emerged at that time. The song is called Needle to the Groove. Uh, one of my, uh, certainly one of my favorites if you're looking at that sort of Def Jam feel, that 80s hip hop rap era, which I think was extremely strong. Uh, the second is by a band called Bayo, Bio, B A I O. Bale? Scott, is that Scott Bale? Not Scott Bale, although I do have, as you I mean, all know, I mean, we've listened to his record many times. We have. Um, and, you know, listen, he's no slouch as a musician. Uh, well, singer or whatever the hell he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is uh, by a more recent band. I, I, we'll just call him Bale. But uh, the song is called Sister of Pearl. Very nice groove. Very nice instrumentation. A little festival rocky, to use your term, Nub. Uh, but Sister of Pearl, great song by that band. I don't know much about that band, but it's a great, great track. The third is a little uh, love ballad from the 80s uh, by a, a, a guy who was one of those uh, actors who decided to get into, you know, try out his singing voice. And that's a Jack Wagner, you know, star of General Hospital and his great song, All I Need, which is uh, oh, love one, of, oh, one of my favorites okay. from from that era and, and in that uh, in that genre. So that's what's in my head. What's in your head, buddy? Hammer Smashed Face by the one and only Cannibal Corpse. Sure, sure. Also known as Ace Ventura's favorite club song. <laughs> it really is a fantastic song. Um, yeah. Completely ridiculous in its imagery and everything else. But uh, Hammer Smashed Face to me is a classic. So I've been spinning that one quite a bit. You know, we're getting into fall, more metal. Uh, Duran Duran's Come Undone off yeah. of the, uh, probably my favorite Duran Duran album, which was that self-titled record they did it might have had a name to it actually i don't remember the wedding was, album it oh was the wedding album unofficially yeah. called because there, there were people getting married on the cover ah yes well the wedding album but uh it's got too much information come undone and of course the one of the great songs of the 1990s ordinary world but come undone is was the one of the singles off that album too and great right saw duran duran a couple times and yeah i saw duran duran a couple times on that tour and classic album and then third would be uh, a little song called Ricky Don't Lose That Number, a song mm-hmm. I've been listening to regularly for probably a majority <laughs> of my life now. Probably. 30 years, I think you've been listening to that one regularly. Yeah. yeah. Never gets old, buddy. Never great gets track. old. And well, you know what else never gets old is talking about great albums with UT. Well, thanks, buddy. I, uh, listen, great pick. It's, uh, I think this is our first uh, foray into at least this level of of metal. And obviously... Uh, Really interesting album to revisit and to plow through and, and was certainly great to talk through. So thanks for the pick. Are you a little bit more of a maggot than you were an hour and a half ago? Maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a small maggot. Yeah, I'm a small maggot, a mini yeah, maggot. I'll go, I'll go, yeah. Mini maggot. Yeah, that, that'll work. That'll Whereas work. me, I'm a fully grown, full-sized maggot. <laughs> Many would agree. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Make sure and comment and leave your opinions and like us and all that good stuff. T, where can everybody find us on Twitter? Please like us. We just want to be like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are on uh, the number two underscore twins underscore album. And we are tweeting away. Episode 18 is in the books. T, thank you so much for all your good thoughts and feelings and observations. And we'll see everybody real real soon as in next week here on two twins and an album two twins well that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing 
We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.